Welcome back to the Future of Feeling podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Ugalik-Phillips, and I'm bringing you interviews with some great minds helping build empathy in our tech-obsessed world. In today's show, I talk to Emily Ledow. She's a disability rights activist and the author of Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. I met Emily in person a few years ago when I was still living in New York, and we've kept in touch via Twitter since then. I talked to her for my book that came out last year, and we talked earlier this year about the role of empathy in the creation of technology. I am a disability rights activist and author of the book, Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. It's a bit of a mouthful. I work a lot in both the activism and technology spaces, which I believe are directly intertwined. There's a misconception that to use any form of social media or to advocate online is a form of slacktivism, but I would argue that it's very much the opposite. And so I have worked on building up a, a platform online which I use to connect with other people about disability issues. Tell me more about your book because I don't know if it if it was out when we last talked a few years ago and I would love to know um, if there's a tech element in, in, in the advice you give. Yeah, so the book is actually brand new and at the time of us recording this I'm about T-minus two weeks from it coming out exactly. Oh, that's so, exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting, and I'm really pumped for it to be out in the world. And there's definitely uh, some technology elements, just in terms, first of all, of talking a little bit about accessibility and talking about how we can make the virtual world more accessible for people. So whether that's providing accommodations like captioning or sign language interpretation at an event or maybe it's sending digital materials to people in advance so they have extra time for processing. So little things like that. Um, And then also talking about it in a a bigger way in terms of how sometimes technology actually becomes the center of lawsuits because it's not accessible to people. So for example, there was a case with Domino's Pizza that Domino's attempted to escalate all the way to the Supreme Court Uh, Because rather than make their ordering system accessible to people who are visually impaired, they decided it wasn't worth it. And so they tried to get the Supreme Court to say that they weren't responsible for that. Um, But the Supreme Court refused to hear that case, uh, thankfully. And so Domino's was not successful in their pursuit of technological injustice. So there's definitely discussion of tech in the book. And then also uh, at the back of the book, there's several resources and suggestions, including YouTube videos and hashtags, because I think that a lot of what we're doing and a lot of what we see happening in social justice spaces is happening online. Yeah, I'm just, I can't, I'm stuck on the dominoes thing because (laughs) I've used the pizza tracker and you think about, so when you bring up empathy and technology, you often hear about UX, user experience. And I know that that cool 
pizza tracker thing is probably some UX designer's pride and joy. But then the fact that you that it's only for sighted people and so much so that the company went to court to say they didn't have to use uh, make it accessible. That I'm not sure if that's empathy. You know, <laughs> who is that empathy for in that UX? Yeah, it's so frustrating because it could have been a simple matter of saying, oh, yes, we'll happily make our ordering system more accessible to people. And there's a way to have a really cool and interesting user interface and still make it accessible. But clearly you're lacking empathy if you're not even interested in trying. And it's not even just a matter of empathy. It's a matter of the law. And so when you combine empathy and the law, it seems like Domino's was missing the boat on both. But yeah, I love the pizza tracker. It's a lot of fun. I understand that there are visual elements to it, but certainly that doesn't mean that the ordering experience should be inaccessible to someone with a visual disability who still wants to order Domino's pizza. Although as a New Yorker, I also feel like, why are you ordering Domino's? But right. That's besides that's the point. Fair. That's fair. I live I live in the suburbs in the south, so sometimes that's the best thing to do. But I take that point. Um, you made a really good point that it's not about it's that in particular. It's not just about empathy. It's about the law, and I think that's true for a lot of these cases, and also probably will be increasingly true as we get more legislation and policy around tech accessibility. Um, so I would love for you to talk a little bit about where you do see empathy in your work and kind of how you define that and just kind of go deeper on differentiating that from, um, you know, things that are just required. Yeah. So I have a, a bit of a saying that I didn't mean for it to become a saying, but I just realized it and I'm repeating it constantly. You can create policy, but you can't legislate an attitude. And I think that is, the crux of the issue that the disability community experiences and that so many minorities experience. There are laws in place that are meant to protect minority groups, including the disability community, from discrimination, from stigma, from inaccessibility. But just because it's in writing and just because it's law doesn't mean that people's attitudes have actually shifted. And so when you're looking for implementation of the law, you also have to look for empathy within people that gets them to recognize why implementation of the laws are so important. And so that becomes a challenge when you have, for example, a shop owner who says, I don't need to make my business accessible because it doesn't really matter. But you're completely lacking empathy there for the fact that you're shutting disabled people out from experiencing your store, from being a paying customer, you know, it's not just a matter of you're skirting the law. It's also a matter of showing that you just don't care about having certain types of people patronize your establishment. And also, when people say, oh, I just don't see disabled people coming into my business, you know, first of all, ask yourself, is that because my business is not accessible? And second of all, remind yourself that plenty of disabled people are coming in, just not all disabilities are visible. Mm -hmm. And so why is it that you can serve someone if you don't know if they're disabled, but if you know that someone is disabled, suddenly you're not interested in letting them into your business. So that's just one example. 
But this crosses pretty much every area of life, whether it's education, employment, healthcare, transportation. There are laws, but the empathy is lacking in all of our systems. In some ways, part of the reason we have laws is because you can't count on people to care about each other, um, as, you know, as has unfortunately been proven time and time again. But where do you think that there is room for empathy as like an actual, not just it would be nice if you cared, but you had to follow the law, but like I'm having a mom brain, brain fart, (laughs) (laughs) that you can actually see, I guess, results or impact from the empathy and not just from, you know, the threat of (laughs) fines. Well, there's one thing, it's one thing to put a ramp in front of a building, but it's another thing to be meaningfully inclusive once someone is inside the building who has a disability. Mm-hmm. So the the way that I tend to look at it is the law might say you need a ramp. The law might say that you need an accessible bathroom, but the law doesn't say what you're supposed to do after someone enters your establishment. And so then that's on you. Um, to be more inclusive. Or if you're looking at laws around inclusive employment opportunities, sure, the law says that you need to provide equal employment opportunities for disabled people, but it doesn't really talk about workplace culture and creating a workplace where disabled people actually feel welcome to be themselves. And so I think that as much as the law tries to make up for the gaps in empathy, uh, there's still a lot of empathy required um, in order to recognize that disabled people are human beings who deserve and have rights to opportunities and experiences like anybody else. Um, but I think the flip side of that is that we have to remember that empathy can really quickly turn into feelings of pity Um or, you know, feeling sorry or feeling like your heart goes out to someone. And so you want to avoid that slippery slope. Of course, we want to be empathic human beings and we want to celebrate everybody's humanity, but we want to do it because you can treat everybody like a human being. Right. I guess this is part of your mission, right? But how do we, um, I'm just thinking about, enforcement of laws how do we encourage people to under like really understand that other piece of it that you know the piece that you were just describing of once someone comes in is it really you know are they really becoming part of the community your clientele comfortable able to actually access everything um what are some of your thoughts on actually getting business owners or anyone you know developers of technology is usually who i focus on but politicians, et cetera, um, to have that empathy? I think it's really a matter of turning it around on yourself and asking if you would be okay if you couldn't access something. I'm not saying that you should try to simulate their experiences, and I'm not saying that you should try to necessarily walk a proverbial mile in anyone's shoes, but what I am saying is that it's access were suddenly cut off for you, how would that make you feel? You take access to the websites that you use every day for granted. So if we're going back to the Domino's website, I mean, 
you just think that the pizza tracker is a fun little thing. And I mean the royal you, not just you. Um, so you're just, you know, ordering your pizza, having your fun. But what if suddenly that was completely cut off to you and you could no longer enjoy that? And I don't mean that as some kind of threat. That's not at all what I mean. But we have to understand that the disability community is pretty much the only marginalized community that anybody can join at any time. And also, we are the world's largest minority. There's at least one billion disabled people worldwide. And so this is not a small number, not a small group of people. And sometimes we look at disability as a statistic, as something that is just a tragedy. We don't look at it as part of human existence, as a natural state of being, and we don't humanize it. We see it as a a vague number, if at all. And so I say, sure, there's one in four American adults have a disability, but have you actually considered that that means that you or someone you know is disabled? And why wouldn't you want to make the world a better, more accessible place for them? Why wouldn't you want them to be able to access the Internet like you do? Yeah, I think this is so important, especially because we often tend to, especially when it comes to trying to use technology to um, encourage empathy, tend to say, put yourself in someone else's shoes. But the more effective exercise might be, as you're saying, just you as yourself, put yourself in a different experience that could very well be your experience. Yeah, I think it's a matter of not being selfish, and that's hard because human beings, by their very nature, are selfish. Yes. Um, But it's just remembering that things you do don't only affect you. They affect other people. And so when you're designing a website, you're not just designing it for one person. You're designing it for whoever wants to use that website. And when you're creating a video game, you're not just creating it for one player. You're creating it for whoever wants to play the game. And so when you recognize that anything you do is bigger than just yourself, I think that's how we start to build empathy. And when you recognize that even though it's bigger than yourself, it can still be something that will ultimately have an impact on you, Mm -hmm. um, that's how we can kind of, bring it full circle and say, okay, this affects everyone, including me. Um, I'm asking everybody how the pandemic has affected their work, and that's a very broad question. So either literally and physically or more conceptually, I'm not sure if you were already working on your book before the pandemic. I had just started working on my book. Uh, The process started in early 2019, but then the actual, you know, hard writing process was smack in the middle of the pandemic, you know, from September to September 2019 to September 2020. So it was very different than I had envisioned my book writing process to be. I kind of thought I would write bits and pieces of it in between Um, traveling for work or doing other things and then I ended up just writing it in a corner of my living room but that's okay and I'm you know 
grateful that I had the, the privilege to be able to do that. Um, but in terms of how it affected the rest of my work, I mean, I think there was a sense of urgency within the disability community. And so pretty much everything shifted uh, to advocating for the rights of disabled people during the pandemic, whether that was um, telehealth, whether that was virtual education um, and receiving the accommodations that you needed or employment, whatever the case may be. Um, and then the disability community turned around and said, we've been advocating for this all along. We've been advocating for this kind of technological access to things, you know, to, for virtual events to happen, for us to be able to see our doctor through a computer screen, for us to be able to work remotely. And now you're saying you can do it because suddenly it affects everybody and not just us. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this sort of shift almost overnight where disabled people jumped into action and were like, we've been asking for this. We know how to do this. If you had listened to us, you would have been prepared in the first place. And so my day-to-day life didn't really change too much. Um, I'd already been working remotely because I had requested it as an accommodation years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just was able to make it work, but not everybody has that privilege. And now the pandemic has made people realize that the virtual world works as long as we're making it accessible to everybody. Yeah, I got nothing to add to that. <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely an experience I had as well. For me, from the mental health standpoint, um, it was definitely really interesting to say to see that, like, okay, now that there's a pandemic, we're taking anxiety seriously. We're taking need for mental health days seriously, need for flexibility. And, um, yeah, we kind of told you so, but great. Now everybody's on board. Let's, <laughs> let's do all these things and um, continue them. And like you just said, you know, be prepared for the next time because there will be a next time. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Um, has there been any time during COVID that you have noticed tech facilitating empathy in a in a positive way? And I guess if you've done a lot of remote work, um, you have, you know, lived more in tech than um, the average person probably. But has there been anything positive empathy and connection-wise that you've seen come out of this? Well, I think it's more so that people have used technology to facilitate empathy rather than the technology doing the facilitation. I think that really thoughtful and mindful people have found ways to use technology as a means of bringing people together and finding support through the pandemic. I know that um, I found myself really enjoying like virtual adapted fitness classes. That was a big thing for me. Um, And I think that allowed me find an outlet without having to leave my house and I was able to do so safely and so I think just a lot of people were really able to turn to technology to create a sense of community where it was lacking I mean I know there were um some disability groups that put together a virtual dance party for people and so sometimes you know, in those moments where things can feel very lacking and lonely, 
it's really nice to see how people try to use technology to fill the gap. And I understand that for a lot of people, that's not a replacement for in-person connection. But for a lot of people, this was also the first time they were able to have so much connection with other human beings simply because the world is otherwise not accessible to them. So um, I think technology has been a silver lining for people uh, during this pandemic in a lot of ways. I actually am cautiously optimistic because I think that although the pandemic forced us to realize some of the roles that technology can play in connecting us when we're not together in person, um, I feel like we've learned some really valuable lessons. And I think that those lessons are going to, in a lot of ways, carry forward as we navigate what the world is going to look like in whatever phase of COVID might be next. And so I'm hopeful that we will remember the value of doing things remotely and recognize that a remote world or even a hybrid world works for everybody because it allows people to do things in ways that are most flexible for them. And so if we can take that and apply it to education, to employment, moving forward, to events, whatever the case may be, to healthcare, we're going to open up the world for a lot of people. And I feel really good about that prospect. Yeah, and I love that visual of opening up the world. That's wonderful. Um, Okay, so anything that you would like to plug? We talked about your book. Remind us of the name of it and then any anywhere else that people can find you and your work. Yeah, I mean, the book, Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally. And I would love if people would check that out because it definitely touches on the importance of empathy for sure, um, even if it doesn't name that explicitly. And you can also find me online. I am on Twitter at Emily underscore Ladau, L-A-D-A-U. And then I'm on Instagram at Emily Ladau, no underscore. And I'm happy to connect with people. Awesome. And I am adding you to my want to read list right now. And um, the book isn't even out yet. And you've already got 4.57 stars on Goodreads. So, <laughs> already doing great but yeah I'm really excited to read it and, and I hope that we can stay in touch thank you and likewise I'm really glad that you're following up on your book because I think it was so important so I love that you're doing that thank you I appreciate that thanks so much for listening to the future of feeling podcast As a reminder, this is a limited series right now, and I am the sole producer. I'd love to keep making it, and you can help by following on Spotify and sharing with a friend or two. You can also send feedback, questions, and guest suggestions by heading to CaitlinUgalik.com. That's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-U-G-O-L-I-K.com, and click the email me button 